Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elitch and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. I'm actually out and about right now. I'm recording this in the Middle Temple Gardens next to next to the office. New Statesman Towers has been evacuated due to a fire alarm. I assume the building's still there and this is just a, a test which they're doing partly to kind of check that, you know, in the event of a real fire, all fine, but mostly to, to annoy the crap out of all of us. But anyway, I've been kicked out of the building in the middle of the afternoon just when I was going to record this, this podcast. So I'm I'm doing it the lazy way and doing it on my phone instead and hoping that the sound quality is is remotely audible. Anyway, this week it's uh, it's a two half episode with two very different very different conversations. In the first half, unusually, we're going to lead with our RC expert section with the Centre for Cities, in which I'm going to chat with Paul Swinney, head of policy, about about an, imp- an important story that we've we've kind of missed. We've not really sort of given enough play to around here, which is that last week was the North of Tyne Metro Mayor election, which we not paid enough attention to and that's that's Paul's part of the world so we're going to have a chat about what new mayor Jamie Driscoll of the Labour Party might do with the role what its limitations are and why it's a bit weird that that the boundary stops at the time then in the second half I'm off to uh, another place very near New Statesman Towers in fact Somerset House where I'm speaking to a lady called Karishma Rafferty who who's been working in the in the cultural field it's a way of addressing climate change, which is, you know, not you wouldn't necessarily put those two things together. So I figured I'd go over there and have a chat and found out how the arts can, can help save us all. But before we get to that, let's go see Paul. So we're going to talk about a subject quite, quite dear to your heart, but probably not quite dear enough. We're going to talk about the North of Tyne mayoralty. Because as a Sunderland native... You grew up south of the Tyne, so you're in the bit of Tyne side that doesn't get this, right? Well, not even at Tyne side, I'm from Weir side, so it's even yeah, a different Tyne, river. Yeah, okay, yeah. So yes, once upon a time, the, uh, this election would have covered both Tyne side and Weir side, but there was a little bit of a falling out, and then we ended up getting this new geography, which is just the, the three authorities north of the River Tyne, Newcastle, North Tyne side, and Northumberland. Which is, I mean, that is basically the old non-metropolitan county of Northumberland, right? That's, you know, it, there, is, there is sort of a logic to that if you kind of look at historic boundaries. But the fact that they've called it North of Tyne suggests that's not the reason. It is just literally that they couldn't bring the other guys along, right? Yes, exactly. I know the point of devolution is about trying to devolve to the area that people live and work their lives over. It's about the economy of today 
and what's the geography of that than perhaps say what the, the old Shire counties may have been you know, whenever they were created back in 12 whatever it was. So the idea would have been to cover that whole area which would have had Newcastle and Sunderland in as well as Northumberland and, and County Durham but no local politics meant that that didn't play out and we ended up with I think sort of the three authorities north of the time sort of pressing ahead irrespective and saying well hang on a minute devolution is actually a really big prize and just because Gateshead doesn't necessarily want to play anymore or because Sunderland doesn't want to play anymore doesn't mean that we should be deprived from having these powers passed down so they've, they've gone ahead with it and been pretty pragmatic I think so while the geography doesn't necessarily work and we would argue cuts Newcastle in two at least you can sort of you know take your hat off to them and say well you know they've gone for it anyway and they have seen the benefit of devolution. Mm, the, the, the phrase cuts Newcastle in two is an interesting one because I mean if you've ever been to the region like Gateshead has a very sort of long proud individual history but if you were just dropped in the area with no knowledge of that you would just assume it was the south bank of Newcastle. From an economy point of view, yes. I mean, they're definitely, they're definitely the two function as one city. And I think certainly the redevelopment of the South Bank of the time in the 1990s with the, the Baltic Art Centre and the, the Sage building up on the, the hill as well and the Millennium Bridge being brought in too, that was very much about you know, bringing sort of those two sides of the same river together. You know, it, it functions as, um, as one place. That isn't to say from a civic point of view that Kate said doesn't have its own identity. But if we're talking about devolution, you know, which is about devolving equal powers over the economy down to the, the area the economy operates mm. over, then yes, we should be viewing these two places as one. Well. It's kind of a bit like doing a, having a London mayoralty that stops at the Thames or a Manchester one that doesn't include Salford. It's, it's a very, you know, you're cutting bits out of your central business exactly. district, yes. essentially. Exactly, it's a great way of describing mm. it. So I have a confession about all this, which is that, you know, two years ago, we had the first, the first round of Metro mayor elections which, you know, we on this podcast covered pretty pretty closely. I think, you know, certainly by the standards of London journalists, we covered it pretty closely. We interviewed a lot of the candidates. We talked about the different races. I very slightly forgot this one was happening. And it was only when you guys published a blog the day after the election. So, oh, yeah, that was yesterday, wasn't it? Now, to an extent, in, in my own defence for a moment, it's because there wasn't really much tension here, was there? We kind of knew who was going to win. But nonetheless... So do you, do you want to kind of give us a bit of, um, just chat us through the election itself? So interestingly, we did a hustings. It was very, very well attended. We we're very pleased about that. So there was appetite locally. But again, there wasn't sort of much chatter, I think, even in the local press about it. And so I'm not surprised that you hadn't really picked up on it because there just wasn't a big deal made about it in the mm. way that it was for the other elections. Yeah, so in 2017, you had six of them. So like even the ones where there was no competition whatsoever, like Steve Rotherham was always going to be mayor of the Liverpool city region. That kind of got coverage because there was this whole new group of roles. And in 2018, there was the Sheffield City Region one, which is not really, that's not really gone anywhere. But Dan Jarvis was probably going to win. He was this national figure. Yes. Norfolk Time didn't really have any of these yeah. advantages, did there it? Was, there was no sort of big figure, no big name going in for it that said Andy Burnham or Dan Jarvis or Steve Robin, just to, to a greater extent as well, uh, to sort of pull in that national interest. And then I don't think there was a huge amount, or didn't feel like there was a huge amount of interest locally. Having said that, the turnout actually was pretty good as far as local elections go. It was about 33%, I think. That is pretty good, head. isn't it? And, and yeah. you know, while you might say, well, hang on a minute, two-thirds of people didn't go out to vote. Actually, say, if you sort of measure that against other local authority elections, and given the apparent lack of interest in, in this, actually, it was high. And given the fact it was pretty much a safe seat for Labour, like... 
there are a lot of things mitigating against people turning out there. The first London mayoralty election got 34% turnout. So 33% is really not yes, bad going. Where we were pleased to see that. I think it was an interesting race in that the politics almost happened before the candidates were announced in that I think a lot of people thought that the leader of Newcastle, Nick Forbes, was going to, to get the, the Labour nod, who was very centrist in his approach. But then also the local Labour Party decided they didn't want that and then went for a candidate which is much more left-wing and has pitched himself very much as being a socialist and he wants to do a regional bank and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And much, I think his politics are probably much more in line with the current Labour leadership um, and that was probably why he ended up getting selected. So that was quite controversial that that happened. And then in terms of how the election played out, yes, you know, Labour did win fairly comfortably in the end, but I think it was interesting to see that the Conservative candidate actually did push sort of fairly hard and it wasn't an absolute landslide to Labour. Um, it did go to second preference votes because no one candidate got more than 50% of the vote. And I think Labour ended up winning by about 17,000 votes in the end. So it was comfortable, but it perhaps wasn't as comfortable as what people may have predicted beforehand. Mm. It's also worth thinking about the geography here is though, you know, even though the bulk of the region's population is going to be concentrated in Newcastle and the sort of suburban boroughs around it, which I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble for calling a suburban borough, but yeah, Newcastle and North Tyneside are going to have the biggest populations. The people in Northum Northumberland itself, in largely rural areas or small towns, are much more likely to be Tory, aren't they? So that probably provides a bit more balance to their sort of political geography of the region than, than one might think. Yes, it's certainly, I mean, if you look at the, the election history, you would see blue in Northumberland and you would see red in, in Newcastle and North Tyneside, although North Tyneside has sort of um, flicked, I think, in, in recent years. Having said that, you know, you're probably seeing you perhaps about 70%, 75% of the, of the population of the area does live in those two urban authorities. So it was um, interesting to see that perhaps the the Conservative candidate pulled more than what we might have expected given that geography. So there were all sorts of things to pick over, I guess, from the election results. But in the end, Jamie Driscoll won. He made uh, an election speech uh, after, which was very much about how he was a socialist candidate. And we shall see what policies he looks to put in place as now being one of Labour's most powerful politicians in the whole of the country. So just to wrap up this, this segment, do you think there are any prospects of the geography of that role expanding to include that sort of southern half of the conurbation and down into what presumably the to balance out the Northumbria bit, presumably you get County Durham as well, don't you? I think for it ultimately to be a success, we would have to see those authorities come on board again because it is strange that Newcastle in particular is split in two. That does limit the effect that the mayor can have. And when we did the hustings, that was the first question that came out was, hang on a minute, we haven't got all the authorities here. What are we going to do to, to try and change that? All the candidates said that they would be looking to, to work with the, the authorities south of time and bring them along with the plans that they're doing. The mayor has got a lot of what we would say soft powers and influence as well as hard powers. He has the ability now to reach out to them. Um, so in the short term, we hope that there'll be some sort of informal arrangement that we'll come to. In the long term, we would hope that actually, you know, then they would then formally become members of the combined authority once more that they have left and you know, and try and get a more complete geography. I don't want to sound whiny and ungrateful, but it does strike me that if you do end up with one mayor covering the whole of that northeast region, except for the Tees Valley bit, which is carved off into its own mayority with Tory Ben Houchen at the moment, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Well, I think there's probably people who were big fans of the RDA would say the North East is a, is a region and we should only have it as one. 
But interestingly, if you look at the, the commuting patterns, there's very little flow of people from sort of north northeast down to the, the Tees Valley. And I think probably culturally to some extent there's a bit of a difference as well in that I think people from certainly people from Sunderland go to Newcastle quite a lot. It probably doesn't happen so much the other way, where you know you've got this the town and we metropolitan county, etc. And there's a lot of movement, I think, for, for work and for leisure across that area. But but they more meant like you're gonna end up with people in the southern bit of County Durham who are kind of covered by the mayor of Newcastle. Newcastle, even though they're much closer to that kind of Middlesbrough, Hartlepool kind of yes. that's um, kind of a bit odd. The, the geography is never going to be perfect, and I think you know to the same extent the mayoralty that's in place now goes from the the banks of the Tyne all the way up to the Tweed, you know, right on the mm. border with Scotland. And there's not a lot probably that they've got in common. The reality is is that Northumberland and County Durham became unitary authorities in 2009. That meant they had loads of districts. They all got merged into one sort of super council. I think if that hadn't happened, we probably wouldn't be having a geography which would include all of County Durham or all of Northumberland. But the reality is, I think that's the way it is. And you, we, we go for the best that we can possibly get given that. Okay, well, Jamie Driscoll, new mayor of North of Tyne, we wish you well. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I am here in, in Somerset House, which I should really know what Somerset House was originally, but it's a sort of very fine arts and culture centre, uh, conveniently close to the New Statesman's offices in central London. It is a Georgian building, so the ceilings are very high and it's very echoey, so you're just going to have to bear with us on that. But we are going to have a conversation about arts and public space and big issues like the environment. I'm going to get my, uh, just ask my guest to introduce herself now. Hi, um, my name is Karishma Rafferty and I'm a curator responsible for public realm and partnerships here at Somerset House. 
And I suppose just kind of leading on from that, Somerset House was originally built as government offices and housed the Inland Revenue and the offices of the Navy and all kinds of different societies. But it's now an arts and culture centre that has a resident community of over 2,500 people working here every day. And it's an amazing building. It is, it is like properly a sort of 18th century manor house, but in the middle of London, overlooking the Thames, where there's like, you know, an ice rink every Christmas and stuff like that. So if you've never been here, it's worth checking out next time you're in London. So I was reading your, your CV. You've had a pretty interesting career. Like, it sounds like you've got to do all sorts of exciting things. Do you want to kind of give us a sort of glimpse of your work before yeah, we flavor. get into the big questions? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, my background's uh, in design, actually. Um, So I originally kind of worked in editorial design, art and architecture books, that kind of thing. And I kind of was much more interested in the development and the ideas around projects than necessarily doing the kind of production of it myself. So I retrained in design curating and eventually ended up at Somerset House programming a lot of design festivals of different sorts and talks programs and things like that. So I've been here just over six years and the arts institution has transformed in that period of time. We have artist studios here, there's about 87 artists in residence at the moment, and it's very much kind of like an evolving site. So over that time I've programmed quite a lot of different types of festivals, visual arts mainly. I've worked with artists on flags and outdoor commissions and all kinds of very strange things. So it it just keeps me interested really. Okay, excellent. So we spend a fair amount of time on this on this podcast thinking about climate change and the looming end of civilization as we know it. We've talked a lot about possible solutions to that. One of the things we haven't talked about as a solution to climate change, though, is is performance art. That's not something that's really come up before. So so make your case. How do those things intersect? Why should we be paying more attention to, to that? It's something that has actually been a kind of like a really important topic of research for me personally, and it's particularly over the last couple of years. But that idea that we have scientists that we listen to or don't listen to, we have political leaders that we do or we don't listen to, but actually a lot of the kind of shifts that we need in society in order to kind of transform into a more kind of sustainable world relate to kind of culture you know what kind of conversations do we want to be having with ourselves with our friends with our families with our broader society and how can um, the, the role of artists I suppose is that they can provocate and they can say things in different ways and use different language than politicians or scientists it's an emerging field, but I think it's a really important one. And is it's about basically just sort of promoting ideas, kind of spreading uh, concepts for how we can actually deal with this thing. It's kind of almost a sort of PR exercise for the environment. Well, I suppose that's one side of it, but thinking through different futures. So at the moment I work quite a lot with speculative designers whose job is to come up with scenarios for how we might live in 50 years or 100 years. Um, And so much of what arts and culture can do is relate back to individual lives. So how does that relate to the way we eat or the way that we are becoming or that we might be more socially isolated as kind of cities grow and develop. So there's, there's so many different levels of conversation that need to be had in terms of 
society reacting to these kind of like global climate issues. So arts and culture uh, can provide a myriad of different ways into that topic, I suppose. Okay, so give, give me a couple of examples of the sort of projects you've kind of, you've, you've been involved in that would fit into this category. So last year we had an installation here by an artist called Michael Pinsky, which was called Pollution Pods, and it was five geodesic domes in the middle of the courtyard here. This happens to be, I think, the third West polluted area of London, and each of those geodesic domes recreated how it felt to walk through San Paolo or Delhi or different cities internationally, Beijing was one, uh, in terms of air pollution. So some are really kind of humid, some are really noisy and smelly in different kinds of ways. So uh, it was a really, really popular installation, but it kind of um, allows visitors to have a kind of more emotional or visceral understanding of what air pollution means, because you know, the, what you hear in the press is just the same old stories mm. again and again. Sometimes it helps to feel and to have a conversation with someone else. It's also the way it's talked about is, does end up being a bit technical a lot of the time. It's like, you know, parts per million of PM 2.5 or whatever. There's no sort of visceral reaction to that. Exactly. In a way where if you can kind of see the, the smoke, I guess, for want of a better way. And what you want to be talking about is how does this affect the, you know, the lungs of our children? How does it affect how long we live? What kind of cities we want? Do we want to live in cities? You know, all kinds of like really everyday choices that we make. So projects like that are just a, a way into the topic. That does sound like the sort of what I was talking about, but being on this communications exercise, but you suggested there is another layer to this. Do you have any sort of projects to kind of illustrate mm -hmm. other ways in which this can contribute to the debate? So I'm working on something at the moment, which is a, an art commission, and the artist is Serena Corder, and she's uh, designing a new flag for the top of Somerset House, and it's called Chaos Spirit. And the idea with that is she kind of talks about the goddess of the kind of the wind and the air and it's uh, it, as well as being a flag on top of the building it's a 15 minute audio piece with kind of recordings from the city and the idea with that is if we only listened to nature a little bit more deeply how would that affect how we kind of think about any of these ideas so giving a little bit of kind of space and breathing room I suppose within our kind of like daily lives to include nature you said you've done, you've been researching this kind of as a, as a discipline almost. Mm -hmm. Like, is there any sort of documentary evidence that, that this stuff does have a measurable effect in terms of how people think of climate change or these other big issues that we need to be dealing with in the twenty first century? Yeah, there's um, lots of. I mean, I, I couldn't reference them specifically, but there's lots of scientific reports around the kind of the role of culture. I work quite closely with an organisation based in this building called Julie's Bicycle, which basically is a not-for-profit charity that works with arts organisations to promote the idea of kind of collective action in this area and how all of culture needs to be talking about these kind of global challenges that we face through a myriad of ways. One thing that I've been part of for the last two years and is coming up to the kind of final year now is a program called Creative Producers International, which is it's a project led by the watershed in Bristol, and it's, a, it's been a long-running program called Playable Cities that this 
particular project is part of. And the idea is that it's 15 different producers or curators in different cities around the world. And the idea that the role of arts and culture in city change is basically the theme for exploration over these three years. Okay, give us a couple of examples. Sorry, I just keep saying give us examples. It's, like, it's getting, getting boring now. But like, talk about a couple of the producers you're working with around the world. What kind of projects in, in what kind of cities are we talking about here? I mean, it's really widespread. So there's, I think there, there's representatives from Lagos, from Mexico City, from Tokyo, as well as kind of UK colleagues. So there's someone from Manchester International Festival who's specifically looking at city change in relation to homelessness. I am, there's someone in Dublin called Michelle who's specifically looking at cycling in the city and working with councils and city officials as well as artists and audiences to kind of explore what does it mean to have a more pedestrian and cycle-friendly city, things like that. What does that look like as a project? I know what sort of cycle, plan, cycle route planning looks like and I know what sort of, you know, great big public art looks like. I mm-hmm. kind of can't quite put the two together in my mind. What results from this partnership? So over the three years, there's a series of meetings where we kind of all come together to exchange, I suppose, different challenges that we all face in the different cities that we're from. The point of the programme is to develop skills in terms of people that intersect, working with citizens and audiences, arts and culture, and then also who have a dialogue with city councils and officials and people who work in planning, essentially. As part of that programme, there's a couple of things that I've been doing here, and my area of interest is obviously the environment and what um, public space in cities, how does that public space in cities relate to climate change and environmental challenges. So for example, um, there's a pedestrianisation project just on our doorstep here, here at Somerset House, which is called Strand Aldwych, and it's, the plan is to pedestrianise quite a large area um, in the centre of the city. So as part of this programme, I've been working with different groups of young people from the kind of local area to contribute to the public consultation, but specifically asking them, what, how, how does this transformation, what does it mean in terms of air pollution, in terms of exchanging ideas on climate change together in public space, all kinds of things, themes like that. Mm. As you said at the start of this, the new statement offices are actually just around the corner, so like that's obviously going to be... The pedestrianisation of, of the Strand is obviously going to be a huge deal for us as well. Which bit are they pedestrianising? I, I haven't looked at the plans closely enough. It's really exciting. It's the, for anyone that is familiar with Aldwych, it's essentially a really dirty, busy roundabout that's a D-shape. Mm. And it's just full of traffic, buses all the time. But within the local area, there's amazing architecture. So there's a Christopher Wren, St Mary's Lestrand Church. There's, I mean, the kind of front of um, Somerset House is a beautiful Georgian facade, but it's just not a space that you dwell in the city. Mm. It's kind of a, a bit of a crossroads, isn't it? It's between, like, you know, the West End and Covent Garden and Holborn and the South Bank and the city. It's just sort of on the way to places no rather than a place lands. in its own right. Yeah. Exactly. And it's a big... Um, cut through in terms of north and south of the city. So a lot of you know, the amount of traffic over Waterloo Bridge going north is phenomenal. But the idea is, the proposal being put forward is to pedestrianise the area between Somerset House, St Mary's Le Strand Church, LSE, King's, over to the Indian and uh, Australian embassies. So 
the proposal is that it becomes an incredible new cultural space in the city. I just, I'm on a slightly play devil's advocate, and I'm sure. going to pretend to be more cynical about this than I actually am, because I love, I'm a metropolitan liberal elitist, I love this stuff. <laughs> is there not an argument that, like, if you really want to solve something like climate change, then, you know, an installation is not the way of actually sort of, ch- you need, like, you know, boring policy changes. You don't just need, like, more of a metropolitan liberal elitist getting excited about something at Somerset House. How would you respond to, what's the counter-argument? I think we need everyone and we need every kind of level of society and different sectors uh, acting together. If people are not interested in the ideas and how it affects their lives and ambitions and feelings about the future, then people aren't going to listen to politicians and scientists. So we've got a two-week programme coming up here at Somerset House in April. One of the installations, which I'm working on in the courtyard, is a series of nine very large-scale LED-powered highway signs by an artist called Justin Bryce Goriglia. And... You know, you've seen the school marches, you've seen kind of the, the Greta Thunberg stuff, the Extinction Rebellion stuff. This is in people's kind of minds at the moment. So as part of that installation, it's uh, nine different authors, poets, writers, philosophers on climate change. And we're trying to create a space in the city where people can come, relate to some of those ideas and just have a conversation with someone else about what that means to their own lives. Okay, well, that sounds fantastic. I'm sure people will come and check that out. I hope so. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show. And I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.